Hello and welcome to this week's ResiCast. We're talking about debt finance in residential. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blacksock Consulting and I'm joined by Phil Clark, who's Head of Property Investment at Aegon Asset Management. I'm joined by Jess Tomlinson, who's Head of Real Estate for London at Barclays and Dan Potteroff, who's Managing Director for uh, Debt Investment and Special Situations at LaSalle Investment Management. Um, so Jess, you about a year ago launched Housing Development Fund with Homes England, the, the government's housing body. And, and that's looking to do what? That's looking to move forward development, speed up development of housing for sale. Is that, is that not a bit of a risky time to be doing that? So that's exactly what we're doing. We're trying to deliver more homes more quickly with our partners, Homes England. The fund is a billion pounds. And the idea is to provide some stretch leverage to get the country building. We know that we're not building enough homes and it's an important thing for organisations like Barclays to be supporting that part of the market. To your point on risk, this residential development lending is something we have an extremely deep track record in. We're very comfortable with the risk metrics that we're taking through the fund. For us, it's all about who are, who are we lending to? You know, Who are the sponsors and businesses that we're backing? What's their track record? What are the schemes? And we're comfortable that if we you know, do our lending fundamentals in the way that we've always done them, it, it, it is a good product and that we will hopefully help deliver more homes. And, and do are you looking at focusing more towards SMEs? Because one of the problems that you hear a lot mm. about from the market is, yeah, it's really easy if you're a listed company, you can tap capital markets, get really cheap debt, but much, much harder if you're a small business looking to do tens and twenties, you know, relatively low scores of housing, uh, are those groups been forgotten about? How, how are you guys, Barclays, looking to change that? So clearly, funding for small and medium-sized developers remains a challenge, and that's one of the things we wanted to try to help address through this fund. So one of the great things about this fund is it's, it's got you can you can borrow ticket sizes from five to hundred million plus. So we are certainly looking to provide finance into that end of the market. Clearly, as for any lender, there is a focus on track record and there is always, therefore, a natural tension between those things. But across the Barclays franchise, whether it's in Barclays International, where I sit, or in our BUK space, we are looking to provide that kind of funding to the market. And, and Dan Potteroff, LaSalle Investment Management, has been in the, the, the debt space and residential for a long time now. And to some extent, you guys wouldn't have a business unless Jess's folk over on the retail banking side had seen that, you know, real shutters come down from regulators. This has been a fantastic uh, decade for you guys, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, 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 it's uh, certainly our space has grown. And, and part of that has been about the fact that um, um, clearing banks in the UK have stepped back, they've delevered. That has been a target of the government in the UK. It's a target of most governments around the world. You can you can see a similar theme pretty much everywhere you go in the developed world. Um, but we think that you know what this is about is matching risk capital with the uh, a- appropriate investor base. So banks are deposit taking institutions. They provide liquidity to the market. Um, they uh, therefore pose a certain systemic risk that 
um, that our kind of um, uh, capital doesn't. We raise institutional capital from the same sort of investors that would invest in uh, closed-down equity funds. Um, they accept the, the risk profile that's, that's being presented to them in the same way they would analyze a, an equity risk profile. If one of our funds were to get into trouble, and thankfully we're nowhere, you know, no hint of anything like that happening, but if it were, it wouldn't, uh, you know, it wouldn't create market risk. But have you been able to get over those hurdles? Because a lot of the the, the projects uh, that that you guys have lent to have, have been quite pioneering scheme. Companies like Apache Capital that you've worked with on yeah. student housing and on build to rent schemes like uh, the Mode of Living Lexington project in Liverpool and and uh, and the big student scheme in Paul Street that was recently acquired by Greystar. These were you know, these are relatively early stage developments that you've you've come in on. How how were you as a house able to stack that up with your investors? Well, I think that's why our investors like the 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 debt approach because you're going into sectors. I mean, we we did our first student housing development loan in 2013 in London. Um, quite a large uh, project for Urban Nest, 100 million pound uh, development loan um, that was essentially almost an entirely direct let. Um, and, and I think the point is, is that when you come in via the debt, um, you can you can underwrite the fundamentals of that scheme, and you, then you have some cushion. You have some uh, ability for it to not go perfectly well, and still and still do a ride out of that out of that investment. So it's it's really about adjusting the risk metrics and asking yourself whether the return you're making is appropriate for the risks you're taking given that you know you don't have to believe the equity story you you have some you have some fallback and and how do you avoid cannibalizing finance pools between as you know as, as the, the the debt piece now you know it's it, it still obviously got that equity cushion but but it, it is seen as a defensive investment mm-hmm. within what is essentially a structurally supported defensive asset class so you know many you know positives that are it's the best of a number of worlds but how do you avoid taking money from one pot from an equity pot into yeah. in, into a debt pot well what i'd say firstly is is that when we started out 10 years ago the capital that we raised was um, relatively new to the UK. So we've raised capital all over the world. Um, uh, and, and these were relatively sophisticated investors who understood the attractions of the, of the asset class uh, in a way that perhaps traditional investors hadn't. So I think we've firstly broadened the investor base. But I think secondly, um, as an organization, I think LaSalle sees the benefit of offering a mix of um, investment opportunities to an institutional investor base, uh, and increasingly, what we're seeing is is perhaps maybe we get a little bit more out because they they see the benefit of say maybe they're participating in one of our core plus funds, but they see some advantage in investing in a little bit of debt which has more defensive characteristics. And so, having that whole menu of opportunities enables you as a shop to develop your skill set and able to to really have that broaden and deepen the investor base. Um, and, and Phil Clark. You were looking at this a fair old while ago, weren't you, when, when you were at Aviva. Um, how has the world changed in the sense of what, what were you looking to do back, back then? How has the world shifted in those intervening years? I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of things happened. I mean, there's a whole bunch of themes that have come out from the early conversation already. I guess in the pure residential space, we've made that mindset shift away from uh, commercial being sophisticated for professional investors, residential being for private, not so sophisticated, and all the degree courses teaching about commercial and not residential, and debt was something over there, nothing to do with us. All of that's gone. 
because the industry has now become much more global. Um, to Dan's point, investors, and we're both an investor and a manager, think about real estate capital. They're not thinking about, is it real estate debt? Is it real estate listed equity or private equity? It's real estate capital. And when you start adopting that mindset, you can then start thinking about, well, which is the appropriate strategy at which point in the cycle? So I think, you know, there's been structural change in the banks having to uh, adapt to slotting. You know, it's not just a UK thing. It's part of that sort of global agenda across all the central banks trying to manage the risk that comes with uh, high street banks lending. But on the um, real estate investor side, that's opened up the opportunity. So um, debt fits very well at this point in the cycle when you've got limited equity growth upside, limited rental growth, and you've got significant downside. We have an economic shock and you've got an, a cushion in, in, in your lending. So it's a really natural evolution. I guess to your question, Andrew, uh, when I first looked at the residential sector, um, this was going back in the very early 2000s, people just thought, what are you talking about? You know, There was no data. Um, I did it in the context of a regeneration fund called Igloo. There was no data. We had to create a new index with IPD. Um, I formed, when I was the chairman of the IPF at that time, or a little few years later, we actually formed a residential special interest group to get data which was reliable, which was robust, and which proved the point that actually it's a much less risky strategy investing in residential. It's also, you know, you've taken extension that, we now have the data showing it's much less risky inv investing in debt than people ever perceived. I think it's an evolution of the industry, and I personally think it's really exciting and it's really satisfying to see it mature as an industry in, in the way that we're describing. And actually that's an interesting point Andrew if you go right back to a question you asked earlier about you know businesses like Dan's you know grown off the back of the contraction of perhaps perception of where the banks are and I think the reality is a, a better depth of liquidity in the debt markets with different pools of capital actually we all see that as a good thing because frankly it it, it, it reduces the levels of systemic risk and it means that there's more options available. And I think so even at an organisation like Barclays, we see that as broadly, broadly positive and we work very strongly with organisations like Dan's to put mm -hmm. structures together that work for people. And the good thing is that we now all very much understand that residential investment um, category and want to support it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just put up a hand for the uh, the regulator here uh, because I think you know everybody looks back and says you know regulators got it all wrong and build up 2007 and that well the response since then I think has been fundamental and one of the primary objectives post 2007 when we literally asked the question how much debt is secured against real estate in the UK nobody could give you that answer we literally had to go and get all the numbers and put it together and um, one of the primary objectives and output of that was to take away that systemic risk by diversifying lending risk across a greater number of lenders, um, particularly bringing in the pension funds as well, who take a longer-term view, because by definition, the high street bank often captures uh, its own uh, capital through short-term borrowing, you know, ultimately in the markets. So if we've reduced risk, Dan Potter, or have we just shifted it from being on the backs of... We've put uh, it with the appropriate capital source. So um, institutional capital has been investing in real estate for many, many decades in the UK, and that hasn't changed. All that's happened is that institutional capital that has a certain risk appetite is now investing in a broader range of products, if you will, both debt and equity. Um, and you know, many of those 
sources of institutional capital have a longer-term orientation. They can hold through a cycle. They can hold debt through a cycle, and they can hold equity through a cycle. And that's quite a key point, isn't it? Because, again, one of the other shifts that we've seen is the operationalization area. I said it, operationalization of of real estate, where once upon a time, going back to Jess's earlier point, you would consider a spreadsheet, looking at buildings, looking at at, at standard performance metrics, whereas now you guys, as an investor or as a lender, have got to look at uh, at the actual, you've got to look at the guy sweeping the floor and the person posting the social media feed on Instagram, all these little indicators. It just didn't exist 10 years ago, did they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think for us, it's been a bit, firstly, it's been a, a bit of an opportunity because I think being able to get comfortable with those asset classes and going in early, we've established a lot of relationships with developers and operators who are best in class. Um, but I think... Ultimately, sitting in 2019, you have to get your head around operational risks on real estate. The days of um, 20-year leases are coming to an end. That market, you know, even in the office space, which which is traditionally where people have looked at it, it's going away. Retail is going away. I mean, you know, retail in in a lot of places is going to turnover leases kind of thing in very short So, so what short are those term. things? So it's a, what are those operation risks that you as a house have to understand and be able to to put a price on? Yeah, so the first thing is you, you, you're, you're underwriting the real estate and you're underwriting the operator. So day one, you have to, you have to get fully comfortable that, that the sponsor you're backing can deliver that operational product. But then you think about plan B. So the question is, if they fail to deliver that, um, product and they fail to hit the NOIs or the EBITDAs that they are projecting, what can you do about it? Uh, and so there it's about looking at what alternative operators do on similar kinds of assets. What sort of margins can you achieve? Uh, and then you layer on um, the sort of macro risks that can come with operational real estate. So looking at, for example, what's happening to wage costs, which is an issue in the, la- in the, in the last few years and something we've been very focused on. Can you withstand an uptick in the living wage. That's a big of, thing, particularly in care homes, isn't it? Yes, it's been huge in care homes. And frankly, we haven't done anything in care homes for a while for, for, for that reason. Um, because, you know, the care home model was, it, it's very labor cost intensive. And labor costs have traditionally been on a, um, you know, on a very, very sort of low cost model. And that clearly doesn't work from a regulatory perspective. That's why you've had, you know, some of the some of the scandals that have come out. Um, and it doesn't work from, a, you know, in an environment where some of the low cost workers in Britain are going home, living wages are going up. Everything is pushing in the opposite direction on the cost side. And, and, and Jess, from, from your perspective, what are the other data sources that that you, as a business, harvest? And and do you think we've still got some way to go in terms of being able to have a, a, an adequate overview of the market? You know, and I guess in, in housing for sale, that's obviously there. There's, there's a long track record there. But the rented housing market, there, there isn't a, a particularly strong benchmark that anybody mm. can price to. Yeah, so clearly we're seeing very good levels actually of debt liquidity for build to rent in the market but clearly the absence of kind of that specific purpose built rental stock kind of performing through a downturn that's something that any lender wherever you're sitting is trying to get their hands around so we we don't yet have that sort of benchmark data and we're all working in an emerging space and as the transactions prove up and there's more stabilization that will grow what i think is important in this sort of whole conversation 
conversation about operationalisation is it's that... It's hard to say, isn't it? It's hard to say. Say it again, go on. <laughs> I'm not going to, once is enough, is that we have gone through this in other subset asset classes, right? So student is regarded as an alternative, but it is a very mature alternative. They're not exactly the same read across, but the same principles apply in when you're looking at BTR and what you're thinking about in terms of the operational natures of that asset classes. So, yeah, it's something that we have all been working with now for many years. We're just having to pick up that toolkit and deal with it with the particulars of the different asset classes as they emerge. And, and in certain, Clark, sorry, go it, I was going to say, in certain cost categories, you can read across. So, you yeah. think about life cycle costs, for Absolutely. example. Student is probably heavier on that than, mm. than BTR, so you can use it as kind of your fallback, and you can say, mm. actually, what do you think? rental will be, you can work through some of these metrics looking at other operational models that have been where you have history in the UK. And we've benefited a little bit from, from having that longer history in PBSA, um, you know, and other, and, and, and hotels to some degree as well. And we've, we've, we've always lent against hotels and we can kind of see what, it, what sort of long-term capex you have to apply to these things. We also have brought in experts from... Um, uh, from from the kind of technical side, and we've costed out what is a twenty five year life cycle cost plan really look like, and then what do you have to set aside for the next five years if you're really going to account for it properly? I, I mean, one one question I wanted to put to, to you, Phil Clark, um, when you look across the, the wider real estate landscape, are, are we seeing a shift in in overall allocations from institutions to real estate? I mean, it, it's often it's sort of been hovered around this ten to twenty percent mark for. For, for a number of years. Is that going to change? And, and the other part of my question, again, looking across the commercial landscape, are the problems that we're seeing in retail an opportunity for investment on the residential side? So to take the first part of the question, I think it's human nature that we all think that what we're looking at now is something quite new. But if you, there's a brilliant book, well, I think it's brilliant because I'm a bit nerdy about this, but there's a brilliant book by Peter Scott called The Property Masters, and it charts how the real estate uh, industry has evolved, how investments evolved. And it goes back to the old sort of lending institutions who used to lend mortgage finance and residential and found uh, they had defaults and they ended up owning this stuff and thought, well, okay, actually, uh, now we own it, we can hold it, and by the way, we can actually make a bit of money out of this, whether it's through renting or selling. And then uh, they looked at commercial and thought, you know, that's quite interesting as well. You know, and that's like, you know, 150 years ago is where he starts his data set to go back to the point about data. So I think we're kind of almost coming full circle here to something that's happened for a long time, just hasn't happened the last 20 years, mostly of regulatory uh, reasons. What's also going on, though, which I think is quite pertinent now, is the shift over the last sort of 15 years away from very secure income streams associated with real estate to what is now very short-term income streams, short-term leases. And with that, there's a transfer of the cost and liability risk from the tenant to the landlord. And um, to Dan's point, we all now have to think as operators. And if you're an operator, um, you're really going to have to show you know how to manage those risks. So 20 years ago in, um, in, uh, in the sort of public-private partnership world, uh, this is something I had to get my head around. You have to literally, if, if you're doing a PFI scheme on a school, 
Uh, you have to work out well, what's the cost of a chair and when you're going to need to replace it and how many times you're going to need to do that over 35 years and what's your risk around that if you get it wrong. What if inflation spikes to 7% along the way? There, you know, you really have to change your mindset. And I think as an industry, it's, you know, I personally think that's quite an exciting uh, challenge for the industry, but I think the industry does need to rise to that and recognise what is a fundamental shift in the underlying security of the assets in which we're investing. And, and, and long lease is going to short. And... and, and it, are, are we able to price that risk, Phil or, and, and Jess, in terms of if, if, as you're suggesting, there's a greater, uh, is a greater potential level of volatility, a greater exposure to inflation, a greater exposure to you know events like you know a, a bad, a bad no deal Brexit to, to coin a new phrase. So there's a there's a micro and a macro answer to that. The micro is you've got to be specific in your assumptions. The macro, I think, is a bit more of an interesting space, which is how is it that a um, a bunch of assets can be valued on an independent valuation basis. And if you put it into a listed vehicle, the listed markets will give you a different interpretation of price. What's going on there? And what's going on is the, the uh, in amongst a few other things like a bit of debt, a bit of tax, the market is taking a view on the skill of the manager to operate those assets. So I think there's an interesting debate here. Are we ignoring the value of the operator in the non-listed space in a way the listed space gives value. And I think that's something we've got to grapple with as an industry pretty quickly. I mean, I think over the next two, three years to work out, how do you reflect that? It's a really good point. Jess, I mean, how do you guys as, as a house reflect that? Obviously, you've been at the forefront of, um, of, of build-to-rent lending. You've, been, you've done some prominent deals and and uh, and and you know being ahead of many of your peers in the market but with a lack of comps a lack of data there how have you been able to, to tackle Phil's challenge of actually putting a value on the operator as well as the actual assets? So, it's all, frankly, it's very simple. It's all about doing our due, due diligence about what is that operator's track record. You know, what have they done? You know, how well do we know them? Have we seen them in other asset classes with similar sorts of challenges? It's really down to the fundamental of knowing your customer. And then it's about pricing, sizing your debt in an appropriate way and pricing that debt appropriately for where you think you've landed on that. I mean, I, I think it is as simple as that. Um, so, so tying things up then, I, I'd like to just go around the room and, and get one view from you uh, of, of where you're expecting the market to go over the next year. Obviously, there's lots of prevailing risks and opportunities, but but given some of those, I just just like a bit of a takeaway from each of you on, on, on what you see as one of the, the biggest risk and biggest challenge for, for the residential market. And, and we'll start with Dan. Yeah, I mean, look, in the next year, I think there is still probably some pain to become public in the higher end of the market in London. Some of, some, some of those stories are just playing out. So you will probably be see, see some negative stories. On the other side of it, I think if you look outside of London, the market is much more stable. It didn't peak. And so there's not a reason to think that there's going to be a big trough. I think in the build to rent side, you will probably see some business models that may be overcooked the top line numbers a little bit. I don't think it'll be tragic, but I think it might be a little bit of realism coming into the into the market over the next couple of years as some of these projects complete and actually let up. So a bit of a gloomy prediction from, from Dan Potteroff. Phil, any any happier thoughts? 
I, I think, you know, if you start from the context, the economy is largely in a pretty stable place. The one positive from Brexit is we've not seen the exuberance you'd normally see in this part of the cycle. So we've not got the froth come through the market. So if there is an economic shot that comes out of Brexit, then we've had some insulation there. I mean, the negative must be uh, if... If Brexit is a very negative event and, as uh, Mark Carney says, there is a need to raise interest rates, you know, there is a significant risk around that in the residential sector for people who've not experienced uh, a significant rise in the cost of their debt. And that would take two, three, four, five years to play out. That, that's probably the biggest risk. I'm an optimist. I think we'll find that way through. I'm not a, I'm not a Brexiteer, but uh, I am an optimist. I do think we'll find that way through and manage our way through that. But at this point, it's very hard to have any kind of certainty about how that's going to play out. And, and, and Jess, from your perspective, what, what are the, the biggest opportunities and risks you're in? I mean, the, the interest rate point is a good one because obviously we don't have much of a cushion now um, to take anything away. Um, and if rates do go up, then lots of potential people may well be priced out of ownership for good. Well, I think that's an interesting point, but I suppose what we're looking at is if you think about um, appetite towards build-to-rent, you're one of the interesting things in build-to-rent is what happens in an interest correction environment to rental demand. You could form the view that that will remain quite strong if people are finding it difficult to make, the big, make those big mortgage pur- purchases. Um, um, the general risk event that I would note for ordinary people um, on the residential side is simply are we going to meet the challenge around the volume that we need to build in order that people have got good quality homes to live in and I think at a sort of human level that's something that our industry needs to keep focused on very carefully. Fantastic well that's, that's a great way to end off so thank you so much to Jess Tomlinson from Barclays, Dan Potteroff from the Sal Investment Management, Phil Clark from Aegon Asset Management, I've been Andrew Teacher at Blackstock Consulting and this has been a ResiCast looking at finance and debt. Please do stay tuned to propertyweek.com for the latest updates for Resi and we'll see you at the conference in September. Thank you.